an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times would have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now look, if you were walking through town, you're walking through Epsom, you're allowed to do that and shops open tomorrow, but if you walked back again through the market town of Epsom, you would see Wilco, you'd see opposite Wilco's M&S. In the middle between the two of them is the great clock tower, the great clock tower of Epsom, no less. And you would walk down the high street and you would see some charity shops that are still there that are struggling to get by, but doors will be open tomorrow. Walking down the high street, you would see the public toilets that are opposite Witherspoons. You would see the market area and you would see how things fit together at least on the high street, but to really get a picture of how Epsom and you all uh, got together and fits together, you have to go not to the ups, but the downs, as they call it. If you went up to the downs on a clear day, you could look and you would see, to the north, you would see Heathrow Airport, and you would see an aircraft stacked up, ready to land. To the northeast, you would see the city of London, just 11 miles away. You cannot see it if you're down by Wilco's in the market town of Epsom. But if you're up at the downs, you can see it from afar with a grandstand behind you. That's the north and the northeast. To uh, the south, you can see some more of Surrey. And to the uh, west, you can see down into Woking and down into Dorking. But when you go up at the downs, you see the great perspective and you see how things fit together. That's the very purpose of this single sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. Paul writes just over 150 words. He's taken up by the Holy Spirit and he goes off on one. He is just consumed with the greatness of God and the glory of the gospel. And he writes one sentence with no punctuation in it. It was all put in later. And this is what the whole sentence is about. It's about a panorama of salvation. What it means to be a Christian. What has God done for every Christian in Christ. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he says 
This is the foundation on which you as a church were founded and built. This is the foundation for every Christian, and you must never move <coughs> from it. Let's look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. That's the sentence that you can see on the screen in front of the lifeboat. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. Paul's saying, I want you to grasp how big and great and wide and deep is the love of God that's been shown to you in, in Christ. God has left nothing. He's given you his very best in the person of his son. He wants to bless you. Now, that word bless can mean many things in the modern world. It can mean, um, I want to do you good. I want, here's a kindness that I can offer you. I want to, the best for you. But in the original language of which the New Testament was written, it, it means more of a shalom. It means everything your heart desires, every good desire that you have, every longing that you have in your heart and mind, everything that the world is purposed in its direction of heading towards fulfillment under Jesus. Everything that's encompassed in those thoughts is in this word bless. Every joy every benefit that your heart and soul longs for is found in this one sentence from Jesus. And notice verse 3, it's not written in the present tense or the future, it's written in the past. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. In other words, it's already happened. God has done something through the work of his Son that's changed all of human history. And he wants to remind every Christian boy and girl and man and woman how great the salvation that they've received is. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I want to explore that with you because that's what Paul does in the following sentences. So this is where we're going to go. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, that's the key sentence, verse 3. But here's some questions for us. And some observations we're going to make. Okay, if that is true, if that's what God has done for us in his son Jesus, how do we get them? What are they? Why do we get them? And what does it look like if you have them? That's where we're going. Not three, four points today. And they certainly do not begin with P. But they do begin, number one, with how. How do we get every spiritual blessing? How? Everything comes in him. Everything comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at uh, the passage again. Look at verse 3. We get every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. He, God, chose us in him. In him is a shorthand way of saying Jesus. Verse 7. In him we have redemption. Back in verse 6. The praise of his grace which he has given to us in the one. In the one is another way of saying Jesus. So this is what God has done. Every spiritual blessing has come to us. How? In him. In Christ. We get grace in him. We get forgiveness in him. We get redemption in him. We've been adopted in him. We have a future because of him. Everything we have, every spiritual blessing, God has given to us in Christ. In Christ is every spiritual blessing. Outside of Christ there are no spiritual blessings to be had. In Christ is life and adoption 
and a new father and a new status and a new identity. Outside of Christ, we are orphans looking for an identity that we try and find in the world. And God is saying, once you were outside of Jesus, and now by my grace you are in him. Once you had no blessings, now every blessing is found in him. And he labors it again and again. So when you become a Christian, boys and girls, you get Christ as your king to obey. That's true, but that's not all. You get Christ as an example to follow, but that's not all. You get Christ as a savior who died for you, but that's not all. Everything that is belonging to Jesus, when you are in Christ by faith, is now yours. In Christ, you have everything. God has blessed us lavishly. He's held nothing back. And if only someone was getting married tomorrow so I could explain it to you. Now, the best way for us to understand this is marriage. That's the way the New Testament explains it to us. When you get married, two, at least two things happen to you from my vast experience of 21 years. There's a legal part and there's a, an organic part. Here's a legal part. So there's a legal part where you sign on the dotted line and you say, you make a promise before God and in front of other people if you're a Christian, but there's a registrar that's there that has to write in very special ink. That's the most interesting part to me. They get trained to write in special ink. It's very cool. They have a special pen. But when you are legally married, just imagine this. Imagine that you are really, really poor. And you're going to get married to someone who's really, really rich. You are two different people before you get married. But when you get married legally, when the groom looks as good as they can do, when the bride looks as beautiful as they are, they come together, they say promises before God in front of other people, and they sign a register, and they are legally married. And from that moment on, the person who's poor they get access to everything that the person who's really rich owns. And the person who's really rich, whether they worked hard or whether they're just rich naturally, to them, they inherited it, everything, all their richness, they share with the person who's poor. Because they're now not two people. In marriage, they are one person. And so legally, they've been united. Two people have become one person. That's not just true of marriage. Bible says that's true of every Christian. Romans chapter 6 says this. We've been united, we've been joined together with the Lord Jesus by faith. It says this, we've been united with him in his death. Now that's a strange sentence to say. We've been united with someone in their death. His name is Jesus. But what Paul is saying is, you've died with Jesus. Just as Jesus died and was raised to life again, that's exactly what God has done when you put your faith and trust and hope in Jesus. Just as Jesus died, you died. And just as God raised Jesus, so God will raise you in him. The death on the cross that Jesus died to sin, you have died by faith in Jesus. But also the freedom now that Jesus enjoys because God raised him from the grave and now he's ascended at God's right hand. That's now yours too. You were united with him in his death been united with him in his resurrection life. That's the legal part. It's also true organically, for want of a better word. It's, a, it's new life within you. It's the Holy Spirit 
in your heart. So that you're not just two people that's now one by faith, you're in Christ Jesus, but also God is in you and he's changing your heart to make him more like himself. And that takes time. That's a process where you can actually see the garden growing if you go out now. You can see the garden growing day by day and week by week. And sometimes you can see that in your own life too. But this is what I want you to remember. When you become a Christian, it is a process. It can be dramatic. It can be one point in time. It can be one moment, one evening, one morning when God reveals himself to you. But sometimes it's not dramatic. Sometimes it's not with the sky being rendered in two and rent in two, being ripped apart. Sometimes it's a process, but it is a real process. There was a time before you were a Christian when you were not a Christian. And Paul is saying there's an organic life that happens by faith once you were outside of Christ. But now by God's grace, when you become a Christian, you are in Christ. Once you were dead, but now you're alive. Once you couldn't see, you were, it's like you were blind, but now you can by God's grace. To stick with words from the passage, you see, you're either adopted or you're not. You're either chosen or you're not. You're either dead or you're alive. You're either in him or you're outside of him. So it's organic life. But there has to be a point when you did become a Christian, if you are a Christian this morning. It's often slow, but it's real. It's a process of understanding. There can be stages, but Paul is saying with the language of choice, you were chosen by God, adoption, the image of adoption, there's a legality to it. You're in Christ or you're outside of Christ, and it needs a choice. And remember who it is who's writing this, by the way. This is the Apostle Paul. He was, boys and girls, he was a nasty piece of work. He was a bad guy. He did some, not shady stuff, he did some nasty stuff. Ask your parents later. But Paul, because he died to his old life and God raised him to his new life in Jesus, Paul can write this. Paul can say, there's now no longer any condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, forget my old life, it died in Jesus. My new life is real in Jesus. And Paul could write that, so all the nasty stuff, all the unpleasant stuff, his past life is, is past. He's not defined by that anymore. He's new in Jesus Christ. He's in him. He's in Christ. And that has power to change the hardest of hearts. That's first point. Here's the second one. So what, what are the spiritual blessings? If, if that's how you get them in Christ, in him, in Jesus, because of him, what are the spiritual blessings? Well, here are three. There's loads, but here are three. Here's the, here's the panorama. We're up on ups and downs, and we're looking at the whole of everything that God has done for us in Christ. I'm just going to give you three points for you to look at. Here's one in verse five, adoption. Here's one in verse seven, redemption. Here's one in verse 10. You could call it resurrection. Okay? Adoption, redemption, resurrection, adoption. Now, adoption, we think we know what it means. There's a picture for this as well. In, in the modern world, when we want to adopt people, it's because we want to rescue a child. We want to uh, add to our family. Um, perhaps people have 
problems of having children. It's a wonderful thing to do to adopt children. But that was not what happened in the ancient world when Paul was writing. Girls were never adopted. Sorry, girls. Girls were never adopted in the ancient world. They, they were treated as unwanted. It was a terrible thing that Christianity changed. But in the ancient world, people were not adopted because they wanted to grow their family in the ancient world. Boys only were adopted because people wanted an heir. If you were a wealthy person, they would say, when I die, I've got no children. I can't give away my inheritance to anyone. I need to adopt someone to, who can be my heir. And so they would adopt a man, an adult, or they'd adopt a boy who would become their son. And when they died, everything that they owned became theirs. In the modern world, it's slightly different. But here's Paul, and he's saying, well, look at verse 5. This is radical. Paul says in verse 5, what is he saying? He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Now, he's saying us in verse 5, and Paul says in verse 1 that he's writing to the saints, he's writing to the church, that means he's writing to men and women, he's writing to Jew and Gentile, he's writing to boy and girl, and he's saying us, he's saying it's not about what happens in the culture, boys and girls, men and women, Jew and Gentile, everyone who is in Christ has been adopted by God, they have all the rights of sons, everything that is owned by God by faith in Christ is now yours by faith. You've been adopted. And that means God is no longer your boss, who you only have to say yes, sir, to. God is now your father. That means that you can go up and tug on his uh, trousers, as it were, or his tunic in that time, and say, Daddy, you can say, Abba, Father. You can do that not when it's only his office hour, but it doesn't happen, because he's your dad. You can do it whenever you want to interrupt him, and he loves to hear your voice, and he longs to wipe away your tears. That's who God is. He's our father, because he's adopted all of us. He's not just our boss. It's his access. It's security. He's never going to kick you out. It's intimacy and closeness. You've been adopted, so you get a new name. You get a new place to live, and a future, and a hope, and a dream. You might have had a shady past like the Apostle Paul, but now you've got a new future to go to, and it's secure, and it's safe, and it's certain. That's just adoption. How about redemption? Redemption is a big Bible word, boys and girls. Let me tell you a story. It's five years ago, and I've told you at least it's once before. Five years ago, we were having some building work done at our house, and our car tax was not paid by one of the people in our relationship that does that sort of stuff, and it was me. So I came out. Uh, to take the kids to school, I'd forgotten to pay the jolly car tax, and there was a yellow sticker on our windscreen, and our car had been pimped, as a technical term, with a very interesting yellow clamp on its front offside wheel. It was about to be impounded unless one of us coughed up. This was the lovely sticker that was on our windscreen. Two things needed to happen to it. I needed to pay, and it needed to be free. Now, that is the image of Redemption. Redemption is not just something to be paid, it's someone that's been, uh, a ransom needs to be paid, but also a person or an object has been enslaved to something. And the Bible says not all of us have a yellow clamp around our front offside wheel that needs to be removed and 220 odd pounds paid in road tax. That was completely my fault and I forgot it. 
but all of us are enslaved to something or someone. We can be identified by how good a parent we are. We can be identified about how good a worker we are. We can be identified about in lots of different ways. And the danger is when your identity is tied up to those things, you can be enslaved by it. And only Jesus is a kind master. Only Jesus will pay whatever it costs to pay your ransom price. Only Jesus has all authority to free you from the bondage that you face. To be a good parent, to be a good worker, to be a good son or daughter, to be whatever it is from where you get your identity. And Jesus, and Jesus alone on the cross of Christ, that we remembered at Easter just a week ago, has freed us by paying our penalty and by liberating us from every harm. Then there's resurrection. Then there's fulfillment about the future. There's adoption, verse 5, redemption, verse 7. Then there's the future of verse 10. Look at the resurrection or future fulfillment or consummation is a big Bible word. Verse 10 says, in the future, everything that Paul has outlined will, will be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Where's the future heading? History is not a revolving wheel. It's not a, a story told by an idiot, as Shakespeare said. History has a purpose. And history is heading to an appointed end and a goal that all things will be brought under one head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be unity, verse 10, to bring unity, to bring wholeness, to bring togetherness. There's a picture on the screen of, of the police in a very difficult situation. <clears throat> Society is always pulling itself apart. Relationships fall apart. Decisions are made. There's war. There's hardship. Homes are broken. Countries war against each other. And the future is, is uncertain, at least from our perspective. And then we read verse 10. All things will be brought together under one head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt, complete security. No doubt, ultimate fulfillment. Every promise that God has made is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And when that happens, how do you know that the future is secure? Verse 14, that we'll look at in a few weeks' time. Because the Holy Spirit is given to every believer, so you know that the future is secure, because you know your present is secure, because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. And the minute that happens, when you become a Christian, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you have that overwhelming sense of love and the presence of God in your heart, and the assurance that that will never, ever end. It will only get more beautiful, more secure, more certain. Those are the blessings of adoption, of redemption, and of a certain future of resurrection. But why do we get them? Why do we get them? Verse 7 tells us why. We can get all those good, precious things because we have redemption, verse 7, in his blood. We have redemption in his blood. That's what Easter was all about, the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of Christ. Think about it this way. Every time God spoke to his father, he could say, I have a father. He could say, Daddy, is the closest to intimacy. Father. <coughs> but on the cross, he says those words we looked at on Good Friday. My God, 
my God, notice how the relationship has changed. But the only time in all eternity he's addressing his father, not his father, but as God, the language of respect and distance. He was forsaken by his father on the cross for us. That's why we can enjoy every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because Christ lost his sonship so we could be adopted. Christ was bound and nailed so that we could be redeemed and liberated. Christ was put to death so that we could have everlasting life. That's why and how every spiritual blessing in Christ is made possible. He's adopted. The resurrected. He will be resurrected. We've been redeemed. We have been chosen. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we've not spoken about Bible words such as justification. Big words that end in shom, as Colin says. Justification, glorification, sanctification. We've not even mentioned those yet. But every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. Let's finish up. If that's true, and if that's how they are received by the work of Jesus Christ, how do you know if you have them? How do you know if you're a Christian? Paul lets us know how that can be decided too. How do you know if you receive these things? Here's a sign. God's grace becomes glorious to you. God's grace becomes glorious to you. Look at verse 6, verse 12. And verse 14, 6, 12, and 14, we see the same phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Mm. Let me ask you a question. Is that the theme to your life? Is Paul beginning his great letter to the church at Ephesus? And this is where he begins to say, this is the foundation for every Christian and therefore for the Christian church. I'm not saying do you believe that God is a God of grace. I'm saying do you sense it? Do you smell it? Do you imbibe it? Do you enjoy it? Have you experienced it? If you say, yeah, I know salvation is about working hard for God, then that's not an understanding of the gospel of grace. I'm doing my best. That's not an understanding of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is received. It's an absolute miracle. The gospel cannot just be understood. It has to be believed has to be accepted it has to be endured and if you don't think that the grace of god is an absolute miracle then that is not a good it's not a healthy sign is god's grace beautiful to you when something is beautiful like a song you want to play a song on repeat to someone in our house who loves spotify they have a very short playlist currently on the back catalog of queen and they're playing it over and over and over again and it's great and i'm very proud of them for doing it but when it's a piece of music or if it's a book that you just love rereading or a place where you like to go and walk again and again that means that place is glorious to you it means you're enjoying it it's become beautiful to you but someone you want to see without a mask they're beautiful to you is god's grace beautiful to you for me, one of the stories that I enjoy, at least the end of the first book, is Harry Potter. At the end of the first Harry Potter story and film, it's in there as well. Harry is speaking to his mentor, Dumbledore. And uh, a baddie, I'll try not to do too many spoilers, a baddie has done something to Harry. And Harry asks the question to Dumbledore. He says, how come 
that evil man, why couldn't that evil man touch me, says Harry. And Dumbledore says, because your mother died for you. Your mother gave her life to save you. When someone experiences love like that, it puts a power on you that no evil can deal with. When God's grace is precious to you, it brings new life into your heart because you've been adopted, you've been redeemed, and you have a certain future. But it touches you, not just in your mind, in your intellect. You need to understand it there, but you need to grasp it in your heart. And it needs to be precious to you. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. When you've been redeemed, whenever you see someone dying in the place of someone else, your heart is pricked to the cross of Christ, and you remember the death of Jesus for our sake, once and for all, and in our place. It gives you an eternal sense of humor about yourself. You can't take yourself too seriously because everything is of grace, and you don't need to prove yourself to anybody anymore. How do you know that you've received every spiritual blessing that Christ has made possible in his life-giving death? Here's how you know. Because God's grace is precious to you. That's the sign that every spiritual blessing is yours in him. When you know and enjoy verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, when you can say like Paul, may my life be to the praise of his glorious grace. Yeah.